everyone. Thanks for tuning in again. This is the Bo Rush Podcast. I'm Scott Nelson with co-host Travis Stowe. How you doing, Travis? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Scott? Oh, man, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm excited to get this podcast started. This is Podcast 002 for everyone who's following along or wants to go back and, and listen again and get caught up. Uh, check out our intro, which is 001. And uh, this is our first actual one. We're going to bring on a guest, uh, talk a little bit about a big thing that you know, uh, I've been trying to do research, research into, and I know you have, but, you know, not everyone can always get that perfect private land to go hunt. So, you know, we're, we're relegated to going and finding public land and, and there's lots of it, no matter where you're at, whether you're out West or you're in the South or up Northeast, you know, there, there's always accessible public land. And, you know, what's your, what's your feelings on it? How are you going to approach this season with public land? Well, um, usually I've had the opportunity to actually hunt on private land, but uh, this season is, uh, we're going to be going off on opening season to public land on a WMA. Um, hopefully you'll be coming with me. In fact, that's coming up in what, two days from now? Oh, it's, it's coming up quick. Just trying to get some, some loose ends tied up so I can make sure I can get out there with you, bud. Very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I mean, uh, I normally like being closer, but the WMAs happen to be a lot further drive. Not too much. Most people are probably used to giving a good drive. I've been fortunate enough to have a 15, 20, 30 minute drive at most to a hunting property. Now it's going to be about an hour, hour and a half. Um, having means we have to wake up earlier, drive longer, uh, but it's still going to be pretty exciting. Hey, a- any hunt's worth the, worth the drive, man. I know that. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, you know, Public land, when we're talking about there's so much of it, you know, there's different regulations wherever you're at, you know, and it's vastly different going between out west and, you know, down south where we're at right now. So, you know, we want to split this into a two-part podcast. Um, the the second part, which is going to come up in a little bit, is going to be based on on the south. You know, talking about Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, you know, that that region. Um, but we got a guest on today that we're very fortunate enough to have come on and talk with us. Um, his name's Evan Williams. He's he's pretty well known out in Colorado. He w- worked in a bow shop for a while, but he knows the regulations uh, pretty much in and out. He knows the regions out there. You know, when you're talking about Wyoming, Idaho, Colorado, Utah, so he's very familiar with with the public land out there and, and how to kind of approach it. So we're, we're really excited to to bring him on here in a little bit. I just want to be, uh, at least let you know ahead of time, when we spoke with him, there was a few audio glitches happening through the conversations. The audio is great. He has a great load of knowledge to share, but uh, just when you do hear it, understand that it was something that we couldn't control. So just be prepared. Hey, so Evan, you know, we're really glad to have you on today. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy day. I know you have have a pretty good commute every day. So thank you for coming on. You know, can you start out and tell us a little bit about yourself and and tell our listeners who you are and kind of your background? Um, well, I my biggest background as far as the the outdoor industry is concerned. Um, you know, I grew up in Western Kansas, um, and a lot of people think Kansas and they think the whitetail side of things. And where we were at, mule deer was just a much more prevalent species, um, and that's where where I gained my passion for for mule deer in general. Um, and as I was growing up, we, uh, we got real heavy into the competitive rifle, um, side of everything. Um, and you know, not the long distance stuff. Um, I was actually, a, 
what you would call an IR shooter, which is international rifle. Um, so I spent, uh, I spent, uh, all of, all of high school, um, had a full athletic scholarship to, uh, the university of Missouri in Kansas city, um, shooting my rifles and trying to qualify for, uh, not only the U S national team, but, uh, the goal was to get on the U S Olympic team. So I trained through, uh, through three quads, which is a 12 year cycle total and just never, never produced or never popped the scores I needed. And in 2007, right before the Beijing Olympic tryouts, I was in Mississippi. I was working for a pro shop down there part-time and had the opportunity to leave the university where I was working on a master's degree and move out to Colorado to train here at the U.S. Olympic Training Center station in the Springs. Well, to be able to do that, I had to find a supplemental income. And with my background in the outdoor industry already working in the shop down there and um, growing up in Kansas, I had my got my Eagle Scout my senior year in high school um, and always had a love for backpacking and being able to combine the two was, was just something that was always on my mind. And knew the reputation of the shop here in the Springs. So I, I came out and did an interview with them and the owner's wife just fell in love with me because of my background and what I, what I grew up doing and where I grew up. And when the, when her husband, Bill came back down the mountain, cause it was in September, he uh, brought me into the shop, looked at me, handed me a bow, said, go ahead and set this up for me real quick. And we'll, we can get started. Set it up, handed it to him. He looked it over and said, you're hired as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that was in October of 2008 after I did not qualify for the Olympic team. Oh, wow. So, and, and from there, just, you know, build a, build a reputation as, as someone that, you know, I believe was, had the best interest of not only my customers, but really, um, you know, I, I view most of my customers even, even to this day as, uh, very close friends. Um, and I think that kind of really helped my foundation in the industry. That's kind of how I got into it. No, oh, that, that's awesome. So right now, where are you at? I mean, you're still down at, down at, uh, Bill Pellegrino's or where are you at right now? Um, I actually took a, took a new job about two and a half weeks ago now, um, it's still in Colorado. Um, I'm commuting up to Denver at the moment, and I am working for Kefaru International. We're a made-to-order pack and shelter company. Uh, so most of our stuff is high-end. Um, you know, most of most of our packs with a uh, um, compartment system. Uh, so we do like. Uh, um, an add-on type system, so you can start with your your basic um, lightweight or, or hauling freighter type um, external frame. Kind of pick and choose what bag you want, and then add your little accessories to to gain some additional space and kind of rig it the way you want. Um, most of our stuff, just basic, is going to start around eight hundred dollars, um, and then we use sill nylon for a lot of our uh, floorless shelters, both for. The single and, and two-person team all the way up to a 24-man TP. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so, That's yeah. huge. Well, you know what? To dive, uh, to dive a little bit into you know, what we're doing this, this podcast on is 
so many hunters, you know, they're out there trying to draw those those limited archery tags, and you you rarely draw them. I mean, you, you'll you'll get them, but the most of the people out there are looking to hunt on on public land. So right. Sorry, my daughter. No, oh, you're good. I think uh, I think I'm the only one here with, without kids running around in the background. Yeah, I have my uh, <laughs> almost one year old son trying to fall asleep. Oh, that's yeah, Florida. yeah. Mine's two and a half, and she just came in from playing in the rain with mom. <laughs> well, you know, talking about hunting on on public land. I mean, what's one thing that you saw with hunters in Colorado? I mean, what was the process between you know finding a public land and, and really narrowing down to where do they want to hunt on that? I mean, it's, it's large, large areas. How would you go, go about splitting public land into huntable areas? Um, my biggest approach is with a passion more for mule than mule deer than for elk. Um, I really kind of focus on areas that in the last three to five years have produced either, either a little bit higher success rates. Um, cause they do success rates for, for each and every unit. Um, so how many, how many guys, say that they hunted that in the, in the survey, um, how many tagged and are they tagging, um, bucks? Or are they tagging does? And then being a, be a Pope and young subscriber, um, or member, I can go back and kind of look at some of those counties and look at the size of animals that ran into the books, um, and kind of make a judgment as to where I want to hunt mule deer at. Uh, before you go any further, when you're saying unit, cause we're thinking as well as someone coming in, maybe the first time wanting to hunt public land out there, when you're talking yeah. about unit, what exactly are you meaning? Mm-hmm. So, a lot of things that that most Western hunters are not, or sorry, most Eastern hunters aren't used to. Western states don't have the abundance of wildlife or, or huntable wildlife uh, that a lot of Eastern states do. You know, we don't get four to eight deer tags like I know Alabama and Georgia and some of those Southern states get. Um, you get one, you get one deer in this state and that's it. Um, you know, now we, we can get, we can get one deer, one antelope. Um, you can get one, what they call list a tag. So one primary elk tag. Um, and then depending on where you're at, you can get a second one, but the entire state is broken up into different units based on geographic location and, and boundaries. Um, some of those are, uh, river boundaries. Some of them are mountain ridge lines, and you just have to know which ridge line is the boundary, and and maybe have a little gray area. Is it the apex of it? And and you know, so so definitely having a GPS system is key out west. Um, but when you're hunting certain units, if if you have a unit restricted tag, like my elk tag this year is a, what we call a limited entry elk tag. So I put in for so many years and every year I don't draw, I gain a point and that gets me an extra, an extra year's worth of drawing or an extra name in the hat. Once I get enough and I draw that tag, I am restricted. I can only hunt that one unit and nowhere else in the state. Deer in the entire state of Colorado is a draw. So I have to specify what unit or a lot of times it's a cluster so, you know, a popular unit out here is, is the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. Well, it's mainly two units, but if you put in for the primary unit of the Sangre de Cristo range, you're actually getting five units on that tag. So you get a much bigger area to hunt, which means you have 
more to scout. You have more that you have to try and narrow down and figure out where you want to go. Um, but it produces very good bucks. Um, but it is some of the roughest terrain in the state. Um, very vertical and very hard to hunt. So that's that's kind of how the, the units work. When it comes to actually purchasing or picking a unit, do you is there some sort of guide or stats that you get about like what's in the area so you know what you're picking for? Um, to some extent. Um, or is it just more of you just need to know the people that might know or contact scouts that do this on the everyday base? Or is it something where you spend the summertime and you have access to go and look and choose before you have to say, that's the one I want? No, you actually don't get to know ahead of time. Oh my um, gosh. Uh, statistics typically, typically come out in, I believe, February. Um, you can subscribe to, I think it's Colorado Outdoors. Um, is the magazine? It's the it's basically our division's bi-monthly magazine, I think. Um, and the January February issue is the previous year's statistics. Um, so it's how many tags were issued in each unit, um, how many points it took to draw, if there was any leftover tags for that unit, um, and and basically all the statistics that you really need and more um, for trying to narrow down. Um, you know, our seasons don't start. It's the last weekend of August is when our seasons start. Um, your applications for your draw deadlines is typically the first Saturday in April. So you have to know all the way back before Turkey season starts where you want to try and go for your fall tags. So, I mean, I guess that, that lends to a little bit more of a point as far as hunting public lands out there is your, your prep time. You, ha- you have a lot of time once you apply for your tag to the time that you're actually going to go and, and try and fill that tag. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's four months, possibly, possibly five in between that. So what, what do you suggest for our listeners? And during that five months, how would you best start approaching hunting a public land is it is it looking at google earth is it talking to the to the dnr is it physically getting out there and walking walking the property like how well should they approach that um you know trying to take the four days off plus flight or drive time to come out here and scout and and get back and losing that that valuable vacation time um probably isn't going to be a big option for a lot of guys um and i know exactly where you're coming from you know, I've lived out here almost seven years now, and I truly have only got three days of in-the-field preseason boots-on-ground scouting. Um, my work was such at the shop that I was working six days a week, um, and during the summer, our busy time, I was working anywhere up to 70 hours a week trying to get everybody ready. So, you know, Google Earth is a very, very good um, scouting tool. It's one of my primary ones. Um, another one that I use is once I kind of have an idea, um, or I narrow down, let's say five or six different spots, um, I can look at, at the division areas. Um, so each one is going to be under like a ranger district or a certain division office is kind of the headquarters for that area. Or you also have your BLM offices, which is your Bureau of Land Management, which is Mm -hmm. basically tied into U.S. Forest Service. All of those are going to be great resources that you can call and talk to either their 
staff wildlife biologists or figure out who the wildlife biologist in the area is. Um, and a lot of times they'll give me um, their cell phone number because it's a, it's a work cell. Um, and I've, I've actually been in a unit last year. I had, I had my six main areas, so I basically had a plan A through a plan F. And when all six of those plans failed, um, I, I, I called, I called the, uh, the division office and I said, Hey, who's your wildlife biologist? Um, and is there any way I can contact him? Well, he was actually out on the, um, on the mountain, called him, left him a message. Three hours later, he had service and called me back. And, you know, we came up with a, basically a, a plan uh, seven, eight, nine or something like that. And I ended up tagging a, a Pope and young, not, not one of my best bucks, but probably one of my proudest bucks. And that was, it was the hell Mary hunt. <laughs> oh, it, it was, uh, it was day 13. Um, I hadn't seen a, a shooter buck. Um, everything I was seeing was, was forkies and I'd rather eat a tag than shoot an immature animal. Um, because you never know what the potential might be. So yeah, it was, it was literally, it was a hail Mary. Um, I had, I had come back into camp that night with the sole intention of packing camp and just hiking out that night. Came over the ridge and I looked 400 yards on the ridge across from camp, and he's there with two other bucks and five does on this on the chute straight out to the uh, to the east of my camp, feeding in the sun. Wow! Popped up a spotter right there on the ridge above my tent, and watched until dark. Went in, slept, got up at, at 5 o'clock the next morning, had my breakfast. There's a rock right next to my tent. Put my spotting scope up and sat down on that rock three feet from my tent. Found him, and, and six hours later, he was on the ground. That's phenomenal. You know, that's, that's one thing um, compared to, you know, out east, down south. The, my experience, anyways, out, out in Colorado has been, you know, the, the – DWR, the, the DNR, the, the Department of Natural Resources, the guys out there, they're, that's their legitimate full-time job. I mean, all of them have degrees in, in biology or in some, co- some kind of wildlife science, and they're willing to sit mm-hmm. there and talk to you on the phone and, and help you figure out through things. I mean, I spent almost three and a half hours on the phone with a guy one time just trying to figure out really how to apply for tags, where I should hunt, and, and, and they're they're happy to do it, which is a little bit different than, than what I've experienced down here in the South. It's, you can't really lean on those guys for how to hunt just because of how many no. guys you have. And there's so much private that they've got their own little spot that they want to kind of keep to themselves. And, and yeah, you know, they're the, the number that we like to throw out a lot of when I get a lot of guys asking about, you know, how many people you're trying to deal with is West of the Mississippi, there are less hunters in the entire area west of the Mississippi than there is in just the state of Pennsylvania by themselves. Oh my gosh! Okay, um, every year Colorado, I believe the last number I saw was twenty-eight thousand and change, so under twenty-nine thousand total archers, um, just in the state of Colorado, and somewhere around uh, I think eighty-four thousand firearms hunters, so rifle and muzzleloader. So you've got 13.7 million acres of public ground access in the state of Colorado. Um, most of that is in over-the-counter units. So a unit that anybody from anywhere, even out of the country, can come in, buy an over-the-counter tag, 
find some national forest, find some BLM or U.S. Forest Service ground, and they can go hunt. Wow. You know, let's say someone does happen to come in out of state, and mm -hmm. they might not necessarily know all the rules and regulations in that particular area. So that they happen to get a tag, they go out hunting, they, let's say, for instance, they walk on to the area that they're supposed to be in, but then they somehow cross over their spots. What should they be prepared for? Because let's say they just happen to walk over. I mean, is there something they need to worry about? Is there something that they need to like, this is going to be penalized if they get caught? How do they know that they're over it? I mean, what's, what happens? The, the best, the best system for hunting out West is get you a, get you a, a touchscreen color GPS unit and look into the on X GPS system. Um, they do them for, I believe, almost every single Western state. Um, and it's what I grew up calling a plat map. So it's the entire state in your GPS that breaks down the boundaries of every unit and what type of land it is. Is it private? If it is, who owns it? Is it U.S. Forest Service? Is it BLM? Is it a state trust? Um, and depending on how accurate your your gps will zoom into like my my personal unit will only zoom into 20 feet but it will tell me within 20 feet if i'm in my unit and if i'm on public ground or private because the the fines and the trespassing and, and all that there is no leniency um if, if you cross over on a private ground and you're a hunter in in colorado a lot of them are people who have come in from, from other states to get away from the big city life or whatever it is, or they want their own little chunk of, of whatever to hunt. And, and a lot of them aren't nice about it. Colorado is the only state that I have knocked on a door to hunt and had dogs sicked on me. So does that happen to be, let's say you get the bull, and though it runs out of your unit into another unit, do you need to do preparation, like call ahead to the DNR or let him know that you're having to now go uh, track the, the animal or what's, what happens there? It is because it's a, it's a much different game regulation. While your tag is, is funding the state of Colorado, the animals do not belong to the state. Um, they view them as belonging to whoever's ground they're on. Um, so unfortunately, like, like, I grew up in Kansas. If I shoot an animal on public or private ground that I have permission to be on and it crosses boundary lines, I can now call, I can start by calling the other landowner, you know, I've got permission to hunt your neighbor so-and-so's or I was on this piece of public ground um, and I shot an animal and it crossed over. Do I have permission to follow? If they deny me access to their ground to recover an animal, I can then contact my division officer and he can actually come out. I can verify that I shot him legally where I was supposed to be at. And he can take me and trail that animal with me to recover it. And that landowner cannot do anything. That's what I grew up with in Kansas. Colorado is not the same way. If I shoot an animal on public ground and it crosses onto a private boundary, which in Colorado does not have to be marked. They don't have to put up signs and they do not have to put up fences um, you could just be walking through dark timber and all of a sudden you're on private ground. So you have to be very careful. Um, but if I shoot an animal on ground, I legally have permission and right to be on and it crosses a boundary. I don't have permission to chase it. I can go through the same steps. I can, I can do everything in my power to contact that ranch, 
either the owner or the manager or whoever owns that property. And if they deny me access, I can go to the division, but they're going to tell you there's nothing I can do. Um, very, very often, um, I actually only had one customer. He was actually hunting in Western Colorado or sorry, Eastern Colorado on the, on the plains, shot an animal on ground that he was leasing and it crossed onto one of his neighbors. They denied him access. He went to the division. They could not do anything about it. So he actually contacted his lawyer, had his lawyer contact the other landowner and then the other landowner backed off once he got his lawyer involved and he was able to recover his animal. How is money? Yeah. And that's right. Um, and the fact that he had to take it that far, to me, I view that as if that landowner refuses access, that's fine. It's your property. I understand that. But that division officer better be issuing them a want and waste um, fine because they are they are now – basically letting an animal die for no reason um, where I'm going to take that animal. I'm going to put it in my freezer and I'm going to feed my family on it. They're not going to do a thing with it. They're going to let the bears and the coyotes come in on it. And that was a wasted life when I was completely in the right. Maybe I made a bad shot. Maybe it deflected. Maybe I hit a front shoulder and at the angle I was at it, it angled back and hit guts and it wasn't a, a fatal shot right there. It runs far enough, crosses boundary lines, that arrow angles and does more damage. Now it's done. Or maybe it's sitting there still alive and animals are eating on it while it's still alive because it can't go anywhere. It's so wounded. So that's that's my personal take on it. So, yeah, I don't like Colorado retrieval laws. I think it protects the landowner too much. Um, but I understand kind of why they do it. I just wish they would do some extra enforcement if, if a landowner is going to be that way towards a hunter. So I guess in each state, depending on where they live, they might want to find that out beforehand. I, I would definitely recommend that. And if there's any question on, am I going to be too close to a boundary? What if an animal runs? Play it safe. Look at where um, private lands are at because there's plenty of, of, of places out there where you can find that. You can find it on huntdata.com for Colorado. You can find it on the Onyx systems stuff. Um, your national geographic, um, fold out maps, it has different colors for public versus private and wilderness versus not find you a good chunk of wilderness, get in the middle of it. You know, that way, if it runs a mile or two miles, it's still running on public ground. That's good advice. Do whatever you can to protect yourself. CYA all the way. <laughs> uh, the most important thing is to get your regs where you're going to go read the new rules and regulations pages um, most of it won't apply in the season you're going to want but you need to at least go through that um, and then just some random you know go through archery rules and regulations because there are some specific ones to each method of take or method of harvest the biggest one that a lot of people especially coming to colorado don't um understand or don't even look at we're a no electronic state none oh, yeah. zip zero period you can have no electronic sites no electronics on your knocks you cannot have any type of electronic video equipment attached to your bow or the arrow huh, that is that, really good to know that was one of the biggest things when 
you know, where we were located, um, it was a great place for out-of-staters to come in, do a final checkup, come in to us, kind of look at the shop, maybe shoot a little bit just to check their bow with altitude. Um, and then, you know, they can head up into the mountains. Mainly your central and southern guys are doing that. Um, and that is the one thing this time of year that I had to let guys know the most was they'd show up with mounts for their, their GoPros or they show up with lighted knocks. And I'm like, do you guys read the regs? You know, that's not, a, not legal in this state. And it blows their minds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and Eastman's did a big thing on it a couple of years ago. Um, I believe there's four states in the, in the country um, that don't allow electronics, period. None. Um, there's another eight that are, we allow this, but we don't allow that. Mm -hmm. Um, so make sure you check out the regs. Um, you know, especially with some of the new technologies and broadheads coming out, um, that new, I guess it's not new. I guess it's, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's called the toxic from, uh, flying arrow. Mm -hmm. And I, I know Chris Rager. Um, I know him very well. Um, I was able to, uh, personally, uh, meet him last year at the Matthew show. Um, but we've talked a little bit and done some correspondence between that, but it was the first time we got to sit down and talk about his product. I, I had had a year of experience with it. Um, my brother was using them back in Kansas where they are legal. Um, and so we just got to sit down and have a beer and kind of share some things and go over some things. That broadhead is not legal in the state of Colorado. And I know guys that are still using them here and I know, I know shops that are still selling them here and they will not tell you it's legal. They will sell you the broadhead and it's on you to know that you just bought a product that wasn't legal in our state. You know, the, the exact reg reads a broadhead must have a cutting surface in the same plane from the start of the point to the end of the blade. So there can be no curvature at all to that blade design, and that's where they get you on it. Wow. Sneaky bastards. <laughs> yep. So, and it's, they're not trying to trick you, but I mean, it's one of those things that's spelled out it, to my mind with a degree in mathematics. I know the difference between a, a Cartesian coordinate graph that's two dimensional, which is would be a legal straight blade, and a three-dimensional Cartesian coordinate that is a, a third curvature and is illegal. You know, and it's, I bet I've had hour long conversations on the phone at the shop with guys trying to figure that rule and regulation out and what's legal and what's not, what can I do and what can I do? That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the difference in regulations between out West and, and, you know, out East or down South, you know, when you, even if you take out the fact that we can kill 10, 10 does and two bucks in a season plus, mm-hmm. you know, plus quota hunts on the WMAs, you know, just yeah. taking that huge difference out, just, just the method and, and the regulations behind the actual hunt is insane. The dates, you know, when you can and can't hunt out here, you're a bow hunter. Mm-hmm. You hunt from September 12th through January 31st in part of the state. And you all right. the way through, you know. And if you're hunting the Eastern Plains, your season starts October 1st, and there's a there's a break for the muzzleloader season, and mm-hmm. then you open back up, and there's a break for the first rifle, and then you have another break for second rifle, and then you get to finish your season out. 
and you are not allowed to hunt during a firearms season if you have archery equipment, if you have an archery tag. You know, and there's, there's, there's states I know, I know, I believe it's Idaho, and I know for sure Oregon. I don't know if they changed it or not. Alaska might be a third. They do not allow an expandable broadhead. Really? So you have to have a fixed blade. You have to shoot a fixed blade. And there's some broadheads, like I, I am an absolute fan um, of the Ramcat broadhead out of Pennsylvania. Uh, Brett Fulton has designed, in my opinion, one of the ultimate three-blade fixed-blade broadheads on the market. Um, there's some other stuff I'd like to try, um, but it's just that it's something I am going to try. I have my fail-safe, um, and that Ramcat is it. You know, one thing is setting some realistic um, expectations. You know, a, a lot of guys are going out and they're just dead set on killing that trophy. But you know, really, they're they're hunting. They're hunting. You're, if you're coming land. to Colorado, you're hunting the wrong state. Um, I'll tell you that right now. Um, Colorado manages its elk herd for quantities, not the quality. Um, on an archery tag, there's. 10 or 15 units, and I don't remember the number off the top of my head, that are a draw unit. Everything else in the state is over the counter. Um, you can find some very, very good bulls on over-the-counter public ground tags. Um, I've got three buddies in Denver, two I work with, and one works for one of our distributors. Um, they're hunting an over-the-counter unit that I know, I know exactly where they're at. And one of them has a five-by-six bull elk right now in a basin that he can access whenever he wants and that bull is a legitimate 330 340 class bull on public ground in an over-the-counter unit there's no way to get to him where he's at he's above tree line the wind is always blowing in a direction if you come over the top he's going to bust you if you come up from the bottom he's going to see you so you know those those animals that get that big on public ground on over-the-counter areas are big for a reason (laughs) So, well, very cool. Do you guys both have have all your tags and stuff ready to go for down there? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I do. It, I don't know yeah. about. Uh, I don't. <laughs> as of right now, unless I, I, I see, this is my dilemma. Do I keep my residency in Colorado and apply for my tags, or because if not, it's going to cost me like four hundred dollars to hunt this season. Ooh. Hmm. It's gonna cost yeah. that much to hunt in Georgia. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's like, yeah, because it's it's yeah, uh, it's like a hundred dollars. It's a hundred dollars for the hunting license, one ninety five mm-hmm. for the big game license, seventy eight for the WMA. Yeah, hmm. yeah, it's worth it. Uh, well, but no. Well, I mean, what I'm probably doing is, is changing my residency and then just sucking it up. Because the thing is, when I when I do my oh, here's a question for you. So how does that affect it? If I'm putting, can I put in for draw for out of state? Oh yeah, in Colorado. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I wanted to add is, even if you do not plan on coming to hunt, you're gonna give up like six hundred and four bucks, and they're gonna keep it for, I think two and a half months essentially by the time you get your check back. It is worth it to buy that point for every species that you want to hunt eventually. Mm-hmm. Um. If you had a tag the previous year, you're going to get all of that money back except for three bucks. If you didn't have a tag and you put in for a point, 
you're going to get everything back except for 40 bucks. So essentially a point for every species is going to cost you 40 bucks. Well, if you do a point for elk and a point for mule deer, you're 80 bucks if you didn't have a tag the year before, but you start accumulating those points before you know it, you're sitting on three, four, possibly five points. Mm-hmm. You got your pick of just about whatever you want for mule deer on three or four points for archery. Mm-hmm. Um, and elk, you're, you're right at some of those units. If we don't go to a point banking system, which don't even get me on that one, <laughs> um, that, that you stand a very good chance of drawing. So I mean, the so. banking, like the point values, right? is that something you cash in or yes. so once you hit a certain limit, basically that's allows you to not have to pay for that year or is it just means it gives you that chance to get that tag? It gives you the chance to get that tag. Um, so for instance, the, the tag I have this year is, is what we call a, an LE tag or a limited entry tag. So they go, okay, for this unit, we let 115 resident tags out. Um, I think we're, a, we're a, like a 20% state. So that means there's 20, 25 odd non-resident tags. Plus there's another, I think 10 or 15 landowner vouchers where the landowners pay a non-resident fee to get their tags. And they can turn around and sell them to whoever they want for whatever for, price they want. For two grand minimum. Um, keep going for mine, yeah. Oh, um, I knew of seven landowner vouchers, and they went for 2200 bucks in a total of three days. So, you know, and some out-of-staters that have money, especially some some of the Texas guys, are willing to pay it without blinking mm-hmm. an eye. Um, but of your limited entry units – It'll take X number of points to guarantee that you're going to get in there. Um, like the unit I've got, four points this year guaranteed that you do that tag. Three points gave you, I think it was an 80, 84 or 86% chance. Um, of everybody who applied with at least three points, 22 people did not draw that tag. So 22 people next year will have four points. And you wow. can actually go back and you can look at how many people with two points applied, how many people with one point applied, how many people with no points. And you can kind of start factoring based on residency, who's going to be getting tags, and where the point creep is going to come where three points won't get you that tag anymore. Five points will guarantee you that tag. Four points will be a bubble. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, so. it's, a, it's complete luck of the draw. Like um, – my buddy Tyler, he's actually he's out hunting uh, hunting moose right now. Um, mm-hmm. He's he's 19 years old. His dad has been putting in for this tag for nine or 10 years and mm-hmm. hasn't drawn. This is his first yeah. year to put in, and he drew the tag. And moose. So so, but here's the thing: mm-hmm. antelope, elk, and mule deer, and bear. I think bear are a completely different system. Really? They are they are true points. If a guy puts in for my unit with 17 points, he gets the tag. There's no questions. They start with the highest point guy mm-hmm. and they work their way down. When you get into, okay, we're, we've taken care of everybody down to four points. We have, we have 70 tags left and we have 92 guys left with three points. 92 guys get their name in a hat. They pull out 90 or they pull out the 70 names. Those 70 guys have tags. The other 22 don't. And nobody below them gets them. They gain a point. Mountain nice. goat, bighorn, 
and moose don't work that way. You put in your points. After three years, you're finally eligible to actually be in the draw. The first three years, all you're doing is gaining points, and, and you're not eligible. You cannot draw in those three years. Mm-hmm. That is your um, uh, basically your bank. So once you have those three points, your name is in the hat once. Every year after that that you don't draw. So I go in with three. I'm in three and zero. So I have my three base points but no extras. My name is in the hat once. When I don't draw, I gain one extra point. So now I am three for my base plus one. So the next year when I put in, I get my one point for my base and one extra for the, for the year I didn't draw. So now I get two names in the hat. When I don't draw, I'm now three and two. And it just keeps progressing. I get one name in the draw for my three base, and every other point I have on top of that gets me another name. And it's some weird, funky system. They put your, they put your uh, ID number into some algorithm, and it comes all the way over to something else, and it flips and spins and does something to your number, and it comes back down to somebody else, and it flips and spins and rolls it and does something else to your number, and then it goes into your bank. And they, they somehow select x number of however many tags and then they have to re-unjumble all that and figure out who your tag holders are Seriously? so just be, yeah just because you're three and 12 doesn't mean you're going to gain that tag i could draw that three and one because my lucky number got pulled because i've got a golden horseshoe somewhere so you know in a little bit of a wrap-up you know people that are going to come out west and they're going to try and go hunt uh, they're not they don't have the money to go out there and buy that big high dollar, you know, ranch for wildlife tag or, or ranching tag. They want to come out mm-hmm. there and hunt, uh, on, on public land. You know, we'll, do you recommend they go to like hunting, hunting GPS maps.com or huntdata.com, something like that to, to start their research or what? Those are definitely great map sites to start. Um, there's also a lot of other Western tools. Um, I mean, the internet is a great one. Um, one of the websites I like to use and I, I like to promote it because I'm one of the, uh, the field editors for them, um, is rockslide.com. Um, and that's rock without a C. Um, another good one is you've got, um, uh, is okay. Um, you've got graylightproductions.com. Uh, they've got another good forum. Um, so, I mean, don't be afraid to hop on one of those internet sites and just, Interested in going to Colorado, interested in going to Idaho or Montana, wherever it's going to be. Um, does anybody have an idea where to start? Not looking for honey holes. A lot of those guys are going to tell you, you know, this general area is really good. This general area is really good. Um, I personally kind of like to focus on wilderness areas because it is restricted to foot and horse traffic only in the state of Colorado. Um, don't be afraid to make a lot of phone calls. Your division officers, your wildlife biologists, don't not utilize a taxidermy shop that is possibly in an area you are considering. You know, I hunted a, a, an area in 2012. I had never been in there before, never got to go in there. Um, everybody told me it was a good tag, so I put in for it. I drew it when I talked to them. Well, I've just heard good things. I don't know anything about it. Okay, I'm starting from nothing. I started calling the taxidermists in that unit in possible areas I wanted to be in. 
and kind of figuring out, you know, where some animals were at that they've heard of getting shot. They were brought into them. Um, so taxidermists know more than, than a lot of guys give them credit for. Cause a lot of guys are going to tell them exactly where they shot it. So, um, my taxidermist, I was at, uh, last Thursday, um, picking a mount out for my antelope I just killed and walk into his freezer and there's a 192 inch typical mule there laying on the freezer floor right next to my antelope <laughs> knew everything about it he told me the unit he told me within two miles of which basin he was in perfect that hunter had a big mouth <laughs> so take advantage of it if i ever get those tags i can go back and reference those oh wow so keep keep notes on on everything um where you're looking what you're hearing um if you go into an area Take notes. If you're in there for three days and you're not seeing anything, but you're seeing late sign, you might be in either an early season calving area and they've already left, or you're in a transition area that they're coming from the high country and calving areas down to those wintering grounds and you're you're just not catching things right. So, you know, keep journals and always go back to your notes. Find an area that holds animals that you can hunt consistently and get to know um the odds of of harvesting an elk with archery equipment on an over-the-counter tag in colorado is about 11 percent i know guys that break that mold every year i know a gentleman um they were on he called a good bull in for his wife on saturday and never presented her a shot it's the ninth year they've hunted that unit the first year he hunted, he did not fill his tag. The second year, he shot a cow. And the next seven years, he shot a legal five-point bull. Wow. So hunt an area as much and as often as you can. Get to know it. Keep that journal. You're going to figure out a pattern. You're going to figure out where animals are on dry years, where they're at on wet years, where they're traveling, where they like to frequent. And if they get pressure, where they go especially on, on a public over-the-counter tag, that is the biggest key. Um, that is, I found a little pocket in 2010. We had spotted this 350-ish bull, um, and he only had like seven cows with him. And we were in an area that it was real shooty. So it was a, it was a north-south ridge, um, and, and both sides of this ridge just had all kinds of little finger drainages. And from the bottom, you could you could find these nice open benches at like – 10,000 feet maybe and you could just sit here and you could glass this front for miles and see all these shoots and we found this bull with his cows in one shoot and we saw him two days straight two mornings two evenings in the exact same spot got a game plan together we climbed 2,000 vertical feet in elevation to get a campsite above him he came out that third morning, and as soon as we saw him, I grabbed my bow, my pack, and I started running down the ridge towards him. What I didn't know is there was another group of guys coming up from the bottom, and when the thermals shifted, their wind blew right up to him, and he disappeared. A week later, I went back into that same area. No animals anywhere in the three miles we could see, but there was a pocket we couldn't see, and that's the direction I headed. There was no trail that went in there for two miles. And I just bushwhacked into there. I found that bull and another one I nicknamed Saber. He was a 48-inch dagger that came up and over his head sideways. 
and a big six on the other side. And they were in a pocket that if you were going to get in there, you had to want to be in there. It was rocky and nasty, but it had a nice flat bench and meadow in the middle of it with dark timber and a little base and all three sides and opened to the, uh, to the east. That's really and cool. when they got pressure, they went up and over a rocky ridge. Just, I mean, something you would imagine mountain goats and, and mountain sheep going into, bighorns. And they dropped in there and they stayed in there the rest of the season until snow pushed them out. So learn an area, figure out where pressured animals go, and you will, you will have more success than the 89% of hunters that come to Colorado for over-the-counter tags. That's phenomenal. Well, yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. You know, a lot of good insight and uh, we look forward to having you on. It seems like there's a lot of stuff we can probably bring you back for talking about, you know, day packs and, and, and full camp packs um, and a lot of other archery, uh, archery in- insight. You know, we're interested to hear what you really shoot and kind of your perception on, on why you shoot, how you do with FPS or, or terminal impact and, and how those kind of weigh out mm-hmm. together. So anything, anything you guys need, I mean, feel free to give me a call and, and no, I'm really, really excited and happy to be a, to be a part of what you guys are doing. Thanks for, thanks for giving me a, a chance to come on and talk with you guys today. We appreciate um, it. You know, if, if any of your listeners have questions, um, feel free to, to get a hold of me. Uh, you can either email me at, um, Evan at rockslide.com and that's rock without a C. Um, or if you're interested in our packs, have any kind of questions on stuff. Uh, you can find me at evan at kifaru.net is k-i-f-a-r-u so it's evan at kifaru.net perfect thank you awesome well thank you very much for coming on evan yeah thank you thank you it's a pleasure guys good luck with your seasons down there man that was a really good interview with evan williams i it blew my mind. I had no idea that he had so much knowledge. I mean, Scott, you found a really good guy to, to bring on for our first podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I've known him eight months, something like that, and I, I've got some time to spend with him that, you know, I, I've seen that th- this is just, what we talked about today is just the the tip of the iceberg of, of what he really knows. I mean, he is he's dove into this industry headfirst and, and dissects everything he does. I mean, he, he tests everything multiple times, whether it's broadheads, arrows, bows, gear in general. So he really does have firsthand knowledge of, of a lot of the things that, you know, I hope we can bring him back on and talk to him more about. Oh yeah, definitely. Especially when he got into the broadheads that I was impressed with the amount of knowledge he was getting deep into. And, uh, I can't wait to bring him back on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, we want to kind of go back over a few things. This is what we call our show notes um, to help kind of recap some of the things that our guests said or some of the websites that he talked about, the the stuff that will help you moving forward, kind of doing some more research on whatever the topic the podcast was on. Um, He brought up a couple of really good points about, you know, no matter where you're going. And it it goes without saying, but, you know, again, we're going to say it. Learn the regulations for whatever state you're going to go to. You know, the simple things of, you know, not being able to use any electronics like Evan stated, you know, in Colorado, that's a that's a big factor because in most archers mind, what's wrong with a Luminox? Nothing. But it's a it's a state law out there. So, you know, make sure you don't have Luminox on there. Make sure you don't have glass inside of your scope housing, you know, and, and make sure that you don't have batteries or you don't have lighting at all on your site. So, you know, always just make sure to double check, um, go to the 
DNR or the WDR or whatever division it is for that state and look into those regulations. Make sure that you're an educated hunter when you're going out to to the area that you're going to hunt. Yeah, I think one of the things that he was really adamant about was definitely getting, especially in his area, so if you're around the Colorado area, but most likely western, is to have some sort of touch screen. And I think he was talking about the OnX GPS system. Now, the purpose was because it gives you the ability to know if you're on private land or if you're on the, the actual unit that you have access to. So you know, if you haven't looked at them, he's very adamant about bringing it with you. So you might want to look at getting one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, he, he listed a few other websites, too. Um, one is uh, one that he's actually a, a uh, writer for, which is rockslide.com. That's that's rock without a C. I've been digging through there. And there's a lot of really good information on there. The, the forums are great. Um, they do some very good pieces on, on again, regulations and, and how to prep for a hunt that you're going on. So, so check out rockslide.com, rock without a C. Yep. And um, man, I can't wait for the next podcast. And I believe we're going to be discussing the southeast area of public land. Yeah, you know, um, we've been talking to a few guys and we're just trying to narrow down. We'll have one of them on or, or maybe multiple of them on uh, on this next podcast. And it's it's going to cover kind of the Alabama, uh, Georgia, South Carolina, that, that area. The regulations are, are, are fairly similar uh, and similar pressure, uh, hunting pressure on all those areas. So they're, they're, they're very relative to each other. Really looking forward to having really successful public land hunters. You know, we've seen pictures from these guys. We've spent time talking to them. And, you know, all of the accolades that, that they have really does show that they are successful and they have a wealth of knowledge for how to gain access, um, better access to public land. Cause anyone can go in the front door, but how, how do you, how do you get to the areas that everyone else isn't hunting? How do you find those areas? And that's what these guys are really good at is, is getting, getting into high pressured areas and finding where those animals like to, like to get away to where they hide at, uh, during those high pressure times. I can't wait. If you get a chance, go to mybowrush.com. And this episode would be 002. So mybowrush.com forward slash 002. You'll be able to check out the show notes and any other information that goes with this podcast and for future ones as well. We got, we got to have, we got to have something. We got to have a catchphrase at the end or something. I got one. What do you got? So be, hey guys, you've listened to the episode of 002 with the Bow Rush podcast. I'm Travis Stowe. Scott Nelson. And if you can't find us in the woods, you can't find us. That kind of sucks. <laughs> there, one more. Mm, serious one. <clears throat> you can kiss your money goodbye, kiss your job goodbye, kiss your girlfriend goodbye. Time for a bow rush. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you can always just be simple. Aim small, miss small. Oh, yeah. See, I kind of like that. That's a good one. We can have it for the third one. Yeah, we'll get it for the third one. Always progression. Fine. I'm Scott Nelson. I'm Travis Stowe. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Take care. <laughs>